So the Tribe drops its third straight on this trip, 6-1 to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's see, one hit. That's all we got, one goddamn hit. You can't say goddamn on the air. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. The voice of the great Harry Doyle bringing us back in here to MLB Morning Coffee. We're not going to have our normal top 10 list intro because you heard the voice of Harry Doyle, a.k.a. Bob Euchre, which means we're doing our top 10 Cleveland Indians. And to join me on this journey through the franchise of the Cleveland Indians, he is a lifetime Cleveland Indians fan. He is an executive producer for the Blue Wire Podcast Network. He is about to graduate from Baldwin-Wallace University, just outside of Cleveland, Ohio. He is an Indians fan through and through, but most importantly, he is a good guy. Please welcome our guest today, Charlie Eagley. Charlie, what's good, buddy? What's going on, Greg? I'm happy to be here. Happy to reconnect with you, man. It's it's been a while since we talked, and uh, happy for you. This show is, is awesome. And, uh, you know, I'm glad to see you back in the broadcast. Uh, not so much the booth, um, uh, kind of recording from home at this point, but you know, getting your, your feet into the podcast world. I love the, I love the show. I love the content strategy and happy to be a part of it this week. Hey man, we're putting out six shows a week. We only put out five shows last week, but trying to vary up the content a little bit. And I think that it is, in my opinion, a great time to be podcasting. It is a great time to be putting different content out there. We've been doing a lot of these top 10 lists and I wanted to come to you for the Indians because I don't know a ton of people that are lifelong Indians fans. You're an Ohio native. The Cleveland Indians are an interesting franchise. They haven't won a world series since 1948, but they have been dominant in the central over the last decade. AL central champs in 16, 17 and 18. Made it to the World Series, made it to Game 7, and went to extra innings in 2016, a year that I feel like they should have won. They probably should have won in 1997, although that was before you were even born. That's true. That's true. So for you, what is the trajectory of being an Indians fan? I mean, is it painful? Is it something where you're always expecting greatness and then coming up short? Like, how I understand that being a Cleveland sports fan can be torturous at times, <laughs> but how can you differentiate being an Indians fan from the Browns and the Cavs? Sure. Well, I think I think a guy named LeBron James kind of made that difference, um, you know, very evident when I was growing up. You see, like it's when the Indians had Eric Wedge as the manager. You know, the Browns were going through head coaches left and right. You know, the the Indians only made the playoffs in 2007 when I was, you know, growing up. Uh, they blew a 3-1 lead in the ALCS. Um, you know, kind of the same thing they did in 2016. We'll touch on that a little later. But, yeah, no, you know, the Cavs, when I was growing up, you always expected to make it to the playoffs. 2007, they made the finals, got swept. And then, you know, the big three era kind of kind of took over basketball. LeBron bought it, brought it, ugh. LeBron brought it back to Cleveland, uh, ended up winning the championship in 16. And so, you know, it's always been cautiously optimistic as a Cleveland fan. You know, the Browns are going to are going to Browns it up, you know, no matter how easy the schedule looks, no matter how hyped they get you during the season. You know, it's it's one of those things where until they actually do something on the field, I don't think I will ever feel confident with any like offseason projection um, that they're going to make the playoffs. The Indians are always different, though. It feels like the media underestimates the Indians, um, even when Terry Francona took over. And that's really when they turned the tide, obviously. You know, they made that wild card game in 2013 and then kind of, you know, started building up, made a couple decent signings, made a couple decent trades that have turned into, you know, at the time, Corey Kluber, some of their dominant pitching, um, you know, couple of the trades got their position players lined up and they made really smart you know front office moves they locked up uh, jose ramirez really early locked up a couple outfielders relatively soon um just so that they knew you know when these guys blossom we'll have that window um and that window was you know 2016 i want to say through last year it was really disappointing to see the team miss the playoffs last year um 
But yeah, 2016 was just different because no one expected the Indians to get past Boston. I went to a couple of those games that were in Cleveland and it was you could just tell that that team was special. And you know, they get past Boston, they get into the ALCS, they 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 sweep Toronto. Um or no, they didn't sweep Toronto. Excuse me. They they gentlemen sweep Toronto if I remember correctly. And got into the World Series and you know, a lot of people didn't expect him to get there. And like you said, they took it to extra innings in game seven. And if it wasn't for that rain delay, I, I still think they would have won that game. Um, I, I've never seen less rain coming down for a rain delay to get called, uh, but that's neither here nor there. Obviously the Cubs, you know, won the, won the, won the world series that year. Um, just an incredible series. I mean, they were replaying a couple of those games on MLB network this past weekend and I couldn't, stop watching you know i knew the outcome of it it's kind of like you know you know what's going to happen you know a couple of ohio channels were showing the 2016 finals this week and you know what happens but you can't look away and even on the opposite spectrum of hey i know we don't come out on top but this was just one of the best baseball teams that i've seen in cleveland and i i couldn't stop watching them even though they lost in in game seven well hey man I know that you're going to be excited to talk about the top 10 Indians of all time. I've got my list, the way that we do this here on MLB Morning Coffee. I'll give my number 10, you give your number 10, my number 9, your number 9, so on and so forth. Sure. So my number 10 is Lou Boudreaux. He's somebody that played back in the 40s and 50s, but he was a five-consecutive-time All-Star from 1940 to 1944. Unlike a lot of players of his time, he did not enlist in the service mm-hmm. he is a hall of famer he was elected in 1970 to the baseball hall of fame he spent 13 of his 15 years in the big leagues with the cleveland indians he won the mvp award in 1948 where he hit 355 with a 453 on base percentage hit a career high 18 homers and drove in a career high 106 runs he led the ao in batting average in 1944 at 327 with a 406 on base percentage He finished in the top 10 of the MVP voting seven different times in his career, which includes his MVP award in 1948, seven-time All-Star, somebody that was the Player of the Year back when MLB had their Player of the Year award, Mm -hmm. and a 1948 World Series champion, somebody that history is very kind to. The numbers in terms of the power aren't as eye-popping as a lot of other guys, but a career 295 hitter, somebody that had an on-base over 400 three different times in his career, and a guy that is highly regarded, at least on the historical side of things, is the best shortstop in the history of the franchise. Sure. No, I, I agree completely. I don't necessarily have Lou at my 10 spot. I actually don't have him in his top 10, but you brought up a lot of good things. It was really hard. See, you know, like you mentioned, I wasn't around for the 1997 World Series. So looking back, historically, it's really hard to put guys like Lou up against guys that I actually like got to watch play, you know, like guys, not even like even Albert Bell, like I didn't get to see him play barely got to see Tommy until he came, you know, he came back that second stint with the team, even Lofton had a second, a weird second stint with the team. But you know, it's weird, because historically, this franchise was dominant in like the 1940s. You know, and before that, I, I think all of their, you know, obviously all their World Series titles came before 1948, but they were in the playoffs year in, year out, making it to, you know, pass the pennant, winning the pennant, you know, making it to the World Series. And they historically just have not only great players, but, you know, when you think of a couple of the, the top players that have ever played for this team, some badass just Americans because they've got the, you know, the Bob Fellers who gave up three years of his career to to go serve in World War II. And, you know, like you said, Lou didn't do that, but he was still one of just those those great players in, you know, in that in that time frame. My number 10 is actually CC Sabathia. Um obviously didn't have his his best years of his career as a Cleveland Indian. So I don't know if that disqualifies him or not. Um <laughs> but he made it into I don't my think top that necessarily 10. disqualifies him. I think it's interesting how people put their list together. Because with CC, it's interesting, and I didn't mean to necessarily cut you off there. No, go but ahead. With CC Sabathia, I believe he ended up playing more years in the bigs with the Yankees he did. than he did with the Indians. 
he did. That is absolutely true. And it, it's not even close. It's well, I, I guess time's kind of a relevant thing, but he spent 11 years with the Yankees, which is, is crazy. You know, the first eight years of his career, he, he was with the Indians. He almost, you know, he had 27 more wins. If I'm looking at it, 28 more wins as a Yankee in three years, but you know, obviously some of his best years were with the Yankees, but you know, when you talk about a guy who was second in the rookie of the year voting, he won a Cy Young. He, you know, for the longest time was on pace to win 300 games. I know his, his body was kind of failing him toward those last, those last few years, six time all-star, you know, two seasons with an ERA of three point, I think it was 3.1 or lower, you know, just a dominant guy on the mound that, you know, even up until his last few games, guys didn't want to necessarily face him. You know, he's just one of those pitchers like Bartolo Colon, you know, another Indians pitcher who just had defeated time, I guess. Um, you know, he had a fastball in his early career and then he just developed his off-speed pitches and like no one wants to face Bartolo. You know, no one wants to face CeCe Sabathia and, and these guys have just, uh, like I said, defeated time a little bit. Bartolo more than CC, but yeah, I've got CC Sabathia as my number ten Indian, which I thought was strange to lead off with him, but I'm confident with it now. I've got some liquid courage in me, so <laughs> I like that. My number nine Indian is somebody that is still very young in his career, but he has put up some dominant years in the first five years of his career, and that's Francisco Lindor. He's mm-hmm. made the All Star team each of the last four years. He's been in the top 10 of the MVP voting three different times, finished second in the Rookie of the Year voting in 2015. In the year that the Indians went to the World Series, he played 158 games, 301 average, 15 homers, 78 RBI. But then, 17 and 18, he explodes. Right. In 17, 33 homers, 89 RBI, hits 273 with a 337 on base percentage, wins a silver slugger. In 2018, 277 average, 38 homers, 92 RBI, and then last year has the best average of his career for a good power year, hitting 284. Mm-hmm. Hits 32 homers, drives in 72 runs, wins his second gold glove. This is a guy that is going to be a superstar. The batting average numbers are not necessarily in file with a lot of the Hall of Fame type of guys, but sure. if he continues to put up the power numbers that he does, I mean, he has 130 home runs through the first five years of his career. I think Francisco Lindor has a chance to be a Hall of Famer. I think he is one of the more beloved players, not just on the Indians, but in all mm-hmm. of baseball. People regard him as a nice guy. They think of him as a steward of the game and somebody who appreciates the game. And I don't know about you. I'm not sure where you have Lindor, but I think it's appropriate based on his early success to put him in the top 10 because by the time it's all said and done, and hopefully he remains a Cleveland Indian, and that's not just me saying that for the sake of Cleveland fans, I want the guys that come up in an organization to stay with that organization. You got to remember, I grew up an Oakland A's fan, and every player that came through that organization eventually left because the A's couldn't pay him. The Indians should have the money to pay Francisco Lindor, and if they don't, that'd be a crying shame. Absolutely. No, it it is a shame. And, and, you know, that's another one of those aspects where growing up as an Indians fan, I've seen it a couple times, you know, uh, whether it was Cliff Lee or it was CC, a couple of just Cy Young pitchers who get traded that next year, just because, you know, I mean, not only was the return great because it turned into guys like, you know, Michael Brantley or, you know, I, I, I can't remember which pitcher. I think they got Carrasco as one of those, uh, in one of those trades as well. I think he was like a player to be named later. And then he turns out to be, you know, a a top three pitcher on the team, you know, a few, just a few years later. Um, yeah, no, Lindor is, 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 he's in my top 10, not quite number nine. He's, he's a little higher. Um, but you're absolutely right, man. I mean, he is one of the faces of the game. He's one of the, the most easily marketable players that I've ever seen play the game just because, like you said, he loves the game, love it, and he just shows it. You know, they they mic'd him up during the All Star game, and it was in Cleveland this past year. And he's just talking about how you know, look at these fans. Like these guys love the game of baseball. They you know fire me up basically, and you know 
obviously money talks, but he's talked so many times about wanting to stay in Cleveland. And I'm sure that, you know, that's just what he's being told to say, just to not burn any bridges here. But it's one of those things where it's, it, it seems genuine and it's going to be really, really sad when the team inevitably has to move on from him because they, you know, a small market team like Cleveland has, has been taught that they can't spend a third of the payroll on a player like Lindor. Um, I don't necessarily think that's true. I think that's a very, you know, like mid 2000s way of thinking, uh, especially when the Yankees were paying, you know, the Jeters and the Rodriguez's and, you know, and, and pay, paying their way to the postseason. Um, you know, teams like Cleveland can compete with that now. And, and we've seen that in the last few years. Um, you know, Tampa Bay has made the playoffs a couple times in the last few years. Um, you know, these these teams can compete without spending all that money. And, and realistically, the Indians have decreased their payroll the last few years. And they caught a lot of heat from the team last year. Uh, they missed the playoffs. They decreased their payroll. They, they decreased it a little more this year. And it's one of those things where, hey, you know, you spent this money in 2016. Why can't you spend it now uh, just by extending Lindor? Like, that's where that money could go. Um, I'm kind of climbing down a rabbit hole here. But uh, my number nine of the Indians franchise is, is Manny Ramirez. Uh, nine silver sluggers. He spent eight years in Cleveland. I actually was surprised that he spent uh, the same amount of time in Boston and Cleveland. And it's one of those things where – Obviously, they moved on from him as well, and he turned out to be one of the most consistent players, I would say. Um, you know, had a batting average of above 300 his whole career, his 312, uh, made 12 All Star games, 555 home runs. You know, he was uh, an All Star. I just lost it. It was in my notes. He was an All Star 12 times, two World Series champs. He was an MVP in the World Series for Boston. And it's just one of those team, one of those things where, you know, if the Indians had kept him, you know, like it, it's one of those things where you just look back and see, well, where could they have, they have, where could they have gone with this guy? You know, could they have used him in 2007 when they inevitably lost to Boston in the ALCS? Um, but it, you know, those are one of those things that you have to contemplate at a time like now when there's no real, no live sports on. Um, there's no other time to really look back and reflect at, at things like that. Cause you know, you look back too often and then you won't make moves, uh, especially in, in a league like uh, the MLB where, you know, one move could really change the outlook of a franchise. I think this is besides basketball, one of those leagues where buying and selling at the deadline is, is one of the most, you know, impactful things a team could do. And, and the Indians even saw that in 2016. Um, I'm I'm climbing down rabbit holes. I apologize, Greg. <laughs> hey, man. Well, the rabbits are certainly going to be happy to see you. I'll move <laughs> on to number eight. Yeah, I thought that was a pretty good joke. I have a couple of them. I'm excited to hear more of them. I like that one. My number eight has been one of the most starting, has been one of the most dominant starting pitchers in baseball in the last decade, and that's Corey Kluber. Now, Kluber is on to the Texas Rangers now, and he had a bad 2019 because of injury, but he's a two-time Cy Young Award winner. Mm-hmm. He has some of the best years you can imagine in an era that's turning into a hitter's era. Right. 2014, his first Cy Young, 18-9. and nine, He leads the AL in wins. He leads all of baseball in starts, pitches 235 innings, has a 2.44 ERA. The World Series year, he goes 18-9, and nine, 3.14 ERA, 215 innings of work, finishes third in the Cy Young. In 2017, leads all of baseball in wins with 18. Leads all of baseball in ERA at 2.25, 203 innings, and wins his second Cy Young Award. In 2018, 215 innings of work, led the American League. Career high, 20 wins, 7 losses. You know what's amazing? In 2015, he led the American League in losses. And still finished ninth in the Cy Young voting and had a 349 ERA. Mm-hmm. Corey Kluber, when he was on, he was absolutely dominant. And the Indians traded him away because they felt like they could get a lot for him. And they got a couple of decent prospects for him, almost knowing that their window is closing. Right. But the one thing that's going to hang over Corey Kluber for the rest of his career is the inability to pitch in the playoffs. Like everybody talks about. Clayton Kershaw with the Dodgers as being a guy that can't pitch in the playoffs. I feel like on the American League side of things in the modern day, 
that's Corey Kluber. Right. I have him number eight because he had some of the best individual seasons that anybody in the franchise will ever have. Oh, yeah. No, his regular season, no doubt. I had him at number eight as well. I mean, uh, and to speak to his postseason play, I think a lot of his 2016 season uh, gets overshadowed by his performance in the World Series. Not that it wasn't it wasn't good or anything, but, you know, you could just slowly see him running out of gas. Um, and it's one of those things that I think will kind of stick with Terry Francona. You know, obviously, Francona is one of those guys that loves his bullpen, but he also loves believing in his starter. He loves believing in his guys. And, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. You know, Kluber pitched, you know, 215 innings in 2016, which was, you know, the third most innings his he's pitched in his career. Like you said, in 2014, he had 235. Um, it's just one of those things where, like I said, I think it gets overshadowed by his postseason performance. He had a great season. Like you said, you listed it off, 18 wins, uh, nine losses, 314 ERA, you know, yeah, crazy season. I mean, he, he had 260, I'm sorry. He had 227 strikeouts that year, you know, and that's one of the best regular seasons that Indians pitchers have had. He's got a couple of those types of seasons. Um, he's been nominated for four AL Cy Youngs, 20 win season. Um, but he gets to the postseason and, and something just clicks off. And I don't know if it's, you know, just the usage goes up and everyone kind of figures him out and and what it, if it's that i don't know if it's injuries i know a lot of you know i think it was 2017 a lot of that got put into you know oh his shoulders messed up and and he downplayed it just like every other pitcher will you know oh i was healthy and and you know i just want to help the team it's it, it's one of those things where it's like would fans remember him a little bit better if he had done better in the postseason? I think they would. Like you said, Clayton Kershaw gets the most heat for it, but I think it's one of those things where deep down Indians fans know that when it got to the postseason and when it came down to it, this guy, you know, as much as he tried to, couldn't always get it done. Um, but he was my number eight as well. I'm, I'm glad we were on the same page there. So who is, So you've got him as your number eight as well? Correct. Yeah, he was my number eight. Awesome. So we'll move on to number seven. My number seven, it was tough because you have to debate the successes of the two guys. Both of them played for multiple teams. Mm -hmm. My number seven is Kenny Lofton. His best years were with the Indians. He mm -hmm. played 10 of his 17 seasons with Cleveland. Right. Although it's really remarkable when you think about it. Kenny Lofton ended up playing for 10 different teams in his career. Check that. 11 different teams he played with the indians for 10 years and he played with 10 other teams for either one full year or for a half year right but he during got... his time in cleveland he was the best leadoff hitter in baseball oh absolutely he either led the american league or all of major league baseball in stolen bases five straight years yep. the best year that he probably had was in 1994 a year that was shortened by the strike hit 349 with a 412 on base percentage led the American League in hits, finished fourth in the MVP voting, 60 steals, 12 homers, 57 driven in. But Kenny Lofton is somebody that always hit for high average, always got on base, played a really good center field. He was a four-time Gold Glove Award winner. He was a six-time All-Star, somebody that was known as the spark plug at the top of the lineup. And I think the only reason why Lofton isn't held in higher regard is that he played for so many different teams after he left Cleveland. And mm -hmm. granted, people forget, he left Cleveland after 96, played one year with Atlanta in 97, came back to Cleveland in 98, and then went to the White Sox in 2002, got traded to the Giants, then signed with Pittsburgh in 03, got traded to the Cubs, then signed with the Yankees in 04, Phillies in 05. I forgot he even played for the Dodgers. In 2007, <laughs> he signed with the Rangers and then gets traded back to the Indians for their playoff run in 2007. Kenny Lofton, in his 10-year Indians career, hit an even 300 with a 375 on-base percentage, somebody that carried himself with a whole hell of a lot of swag. My number seven, Kenny Lofton. Yeah, Kenny was quite the character. Um, and you talk to anyone in the Cleveland media, and they've got a lot of interesting stories about uh, Kenny Lofton. He's, also, he's one of those players where, 
if he would have interacted a little better in Cleveland, he might be one of those higher regarded players. Um, Lofton's in my top 10. I'll give a little sneak peek. It's not my number seven. My number seven is Lindor. Um, for all the le- all the reasons you listed, um, and I, I think it's interesting we had Kluber and Lindor kind of slotted back and forth. Um, I just think, you know, it's one of those things where Lindor's so young. He's got so much potential, and he's, he's he was like one of the youngest to come into the game. I, he only spent like three years in the minor leagues. He tore it up down there, came up first-round draft pick, um, and just – I found a groove from his rookie year on. Like you said, he, he started popping off a few years ago and it's one of those unexpected things. Everyone knew Lindor was a consistent hitter and could get on base. And, and when the time was right, steal a couple bases. When he started hitting 30 plus home runs in, in a season, I think that's when he became one of the most lethal shortstops in the game. And it was interesting because he showed up to spring training in 2017. I think it was, and everyone was just commenting on how, how ripped he was and, and just how, you know, it was clear that he he put in in work in the on the weight bench over the off season, and just like that, I mean, it clicked. You know, he's had a couple stints where, you know, something wasn't right in the plate, but he, I don't remember which year it was, but when Jose Ramirez had a really bad stretch, I think it was the end of twenty seventeen. Lindor said something to where, you know, the guys that hit three hundred are going to hit three hundred no matter what. The guys who are going to hit 250 are going to hit 250. It's it's one of those – it's the law of averages, right? Like no matter what in a season, you will hit what you normally hit. And it's just one of those things where he started hitting for power and you didn't see the batting production drop off nearly as much as you do with some guys who start swinging for the fences. And it was just one of those things where he kind of spoke it into existence. Like, you know, if I if I hit 300 this year, then, you know, next year I probably will too kind of thing. You know, if I'm a very consistent hitter, I'm going to stay consistent. It's just those singles turned into doubles, doubles turned into home runs. And it was one of those things where, like you said, he just became super, super powerful at the plate. And everyone, you know, kind of got scared of him to, to face him in the box. Um, but yeah, Kluber or Kluber was my eight. Lindor was my seven. Like I said, I think it was interesting that we had those two uh, kind of current players uh, flip-flopped in this top 10. On to my number six, Nap LaHoy. And I'm not mm. sure I'm pronouncing his name properly, but this is a guy that started his career before the turn of the 1900 century. Right. He began in Philadelphia. He came to Cleveland in 1902, but he put up some amazing years while he was in Cleveland. In 1903, he hits 344, seven homers, but he drives in 100, or rather 93 RBI the next year. And this tells you about the dead ball era. He hits a major league best 376, has a 413 on base, which is best in the American League, major league best in slugging percentage at 546 and a major league best 959 OPS led all of baseball with 302 total bases. And this tells this is the dead ball era. He had five homers in 1904 and drove in 102 runs. In 1906, <laughs> he had 91 RBI with zero homers. He didn't hit a single homer wow. in 1906 and still drove in 91 runs. In 1910, he hit 383, four homers, 76 runs batted in, on base of 444. Nap LaHoy, in his 21 year career, hit 338. With the Indians, he hit 339 in 13 years. The MVP award didn't exist until 1911. So he finished top 15 in the MVP award twice. But Nap LaHoy is somebody that was as dominant of a second baseman as you can imagine during his era. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you kind of spoke to his consistency. See, here's where it got really interesting for me because you got the top six and I, I knew who I wanted to to include, but ranking them got really interesting. And if you could see my like little notepad, I've got multiple arrows going back and forth of like, hmm, flip this guy for this guy kind of thing. And if I was smart, I would have made a final kind of draft. But, you know, I can, I can read it. So um, my number six is my favorite Cleveland Indian of all time. And I, I think he's a lot of people's favorite Cleveland Indian of all time. I've got Jim Tomey at the sixth spot. Um, career 612 home runs. 
He had a span where he hit 190 in four separate years. He was, you know, very good in the box. He's got one of my, you know, most favorite home runs of all time at at the Jake where it went out of the park and you could just see the fans reactions who were in the bleachers in center field where they were like, um, Hey guys, this one kind of left the building. You could just see them like grabbing their heads. They couldn't believe like it left the building. And now there's a little plaque out there, you know, commemorating that hey, this dude hit the ball 511 feet. Um, you know, he's got a career batting average of uh 276, which is a lot. It was a lot better than I expected. I expected, you know, Tommy to be one of those guys who are in the 250, 260 range, uh, especially with all the power that he, he hit for, um, Played 13 years in Cleveland. He had a weird, I think it was, yeah, it was 2011 where he came back and it was just very nostalgic and it was, it was super interesting to see him, you know, suit back up in the Indians uniform. Had a couple years after that, he played for Baltimore when he was 41, um, which was very interesting because he hit 257 still, had a couple home runs, had still doing very well in the plate, had a bunch of walks, um, and it's just one of those, another one of those players where he kind of stood the test of time, uh, got elected to the Hall of Fame, and he's a top six Cleveland Indian all time, in my opinion. We move to the number five on our list, and I'm going with somebody that you already listed, Manny Ramirez. Now, Manny Ramirez mm. was somebody that had some dominant years when he was in Cleveland. People always remember him as the Red Sox, right. but his best years came in 1999, his second to last year with the Indians, hits 333, 44 homers, leads all of baseball with 165 RBI, leads the AL in slugging percentage at 663 and OPS at 1,105, finishes third in the MVP. He ends up in his career split between the Red Sox, the Indians, and granted, he didn't win any of these with the Dodgers, White Sox, or did you realize, by the way, that he finished his career with the Rays? He had 17 huh. at bat with the Rays before he got popped for roids in 2011. I did not. I did not. I kind of remembered him as a Dodger to end his career. Yeah, so he had 24 games with the White Sox in 2010 after the Dodgers shipped him to Chicago right. in 2010. And then five games with the Rays in 2011. But he's a 12-time All-Star, nine-time Silver Slugger, ends up winning two World Series titles with the Red Sox. And he also won the AL batting title in 2002 with the Red Sox. But his Indians numbers were impressive. He's originally a Cleveland Indians prospect, hit 313 in eight years in Cleveland, 236 average, eight or rather 236 home runs at 313 average, 407 on base percentage. Manny Ramirez actually quadrupled his stolen base total with the Red Sox that he had with the Indians. So he had 28 stolen bases <laughs> with the Indians, just seven steals in eight years with the Red Sox. Manny was not a guy that liked to run a whole lot toward no, the end wasn't. of his career, but was an extremely athletic guy earlier in his career, but Manny got significantly heavier during his time in Boston, but <laughs> still had great power numbers when he was in Cleveland. He hit over 40 homers three different times during his time with Cleveland. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting because like I grew up watching Manny. Well, I guess in Boston more, uh, like I said, it's one of those things where it's like, if you could have this guy back, would he help you a little more? Um, I, I didn't feel comfortable putting him higher than 10 for some reason. It was just like this little, uh, knot in my stomach. That's like, Hmm, you're going to put him above these guys. And it was like, well, yes, little knot in my stomach. I was going to, until you, uh, kind of crept up on me. My number five is, uh, Bob Lemon. And Bob Lemon actually played in the 1940s and 50s. He didn't date, he didn't uh, play as a rookie until his age 25 season. He uh, served three years in uh, the he served three years in the military before you know beginning his career with the Indians. Had a couple 21 seasons. Had a few sub 3.0 ERA years. Uh, seven straight All Star games. Had a 3.23 career ERA. Um, not a crazy amount of strikeouts. He, he, the most in his career in one in one season was 170. Um, finished out his career with just shy of 1300 in 13 years. Um, but it was just one of those guys where obviously he was doing something right. He was in the MVP voting uh, six of those seven years. He won the All Star game. He was also top ten in the MVP voting. 
a few years later in 1956 where he didn't necessarily make the all-star game. Um, but yeah, um, it's just one of those things where Indians have been known for their dominant pitching and that's gone, you know, all the way back from Bob Feller, Bob Lemon as well. Uh, and that's what makes him my number five Indian. We now move into the top four. My number four was a difficult choice, but this is a defensive choice. Somebody that I think will eventually get into the Hall of Fame. That's Omar Vizquel. Bingo. Omar Vizquel started <laughs> his career with the Seattle Mariners, but he's mainly known for his time in Cleveland. In 11 years with the Indians, he had 283. He never finished higher than 16th in the MVP voting, which he did in 1999, where he had 333 with five homers and 66 runs batted in. But from 1993 until 2001, he won the Gold Glove every year. He only mm -hmm. made the All-Star team three times, but this is somebody that was maybe the best defensive shortstop of his generation, and he bounced around to a couple different teams toward the end of his career. He signed with the Giants in 2005, spent four years with the Giants, then one year with the Rangers, two years with the White Sox, and then finished up with the Blue Jays, but somebody that was a critical part of that Indians team in 1997 that probably should have won the World Series. And I think that Omar Vizquel isn't held in as high regard because people don't remember the glory years of Vizquel. But yeah. his best years were with Cleveland, and the longest period of time that he played with any one team was with Cleveland. Right. I think you're right there. He doesn't get high, as highly regarded as well because he was more, like you said, defensive. He's got the 11 gold gloves. He wasn't an offensive. He wasn't a huge threat at the plate. Um, he was also my number four Cleveland Indian, though, for the exact reasons you mentioned. I have down 11 gold gloves, the all-star games, and then in kind of parentheses at the end, best defensive shortstop, question mark, and 11 gold gloves with, like you said, um, count them up, nine in a row, is, is kind of uh, telling that at the time he was the best defensive shortstop. And you win, you know, nine in a row of anything. And I think that puts you in the kind of category for best of all time, um, at least in the conversation. Um, and in Omar's case, I think he is one of the best defensive shortstops of all time. Not a lot of guys in front of him. Um, you know, people will people will bring up a lot of guys based on like their their offensive thing. And like I said, I think that's why he isn't regarded as, as one of the top, you know, Indians or or isn't a Hall of Famer yet. I think he'll get there too. It's just that they, you know, look at his uh, what he did at the plate, his production there, and it just doesn't match, you know, current Hall of Famers. It just seems that they take that that offensive side of the game. Uh, so much more impactful than the defensive side of the game. We move into the top three. My number three is another guy that played way back when, but somebody that was elected to the Hall of Fame in 1937, Tris Speaker. Mm -hmm. He is the all-time Major League leader in doubles with 792. Tris Speaker came to the Indians in 1916, spent 11 of his 22 years in the big leagues with them. He hit 354 in a hundred, or rather, in 1,519 games with 73 homers and 886 RBI. He was the doubles machine. And when I say that, he led the big leagues in doubles seven different times. In 1912 with the Red Sox, he led baseball with a 464 on base, led the American League with 10 homers, had 90 RBI, and won the AL MVP. In 1916, he comes to the Indians, and he doesn't win the Triple Crown. He hits a Major League best 386, a 470 on-base percentage, has only two homers, but drives in 79 runs. In 1920, he has his first 100-plus RBI season with 107, hits 388 with a 483 on-base percentage. In 1922, he leads all of baseball and on base at 474. And then in 1923, hits 380 with a 469 on base, 17 homers, which is the most he hit in any year in his career, and a big league best 130 RBI. Tris Speaker was as good of a hitter for average and as good of an on base man as you'll ever find. He never 
in a season where he played over 100 games, hit below 300 until the last year of his career in 1928 with the Philadelphia A's. Unreal. He played a total. He played over 100 games, 20, or rather 19 of the 22 years he played in the big leagues. In every year that he played over 100 games, he never hit below 300. And he hit 267 with the Philadelphia A's in 1928, but he only played 64 games. Yeah, one of the most interesting things about Tris is that, first off, you look at these numbers and they are video game-like. Um, like you said, a 354 career batting average still leads the the has the major league record for doubles. Greg, he had more steals in his career than strikeouts. He struck out 4% of the time that he went to the plate. Like this guy, he didn't strike out. He got on base. He moved runners. He moved himself and he scored. He, he, he was just a, a productive machine. Um, he's not my number three, but I've got him down as one of the top Indians. At number three, I've got Kenny Lofton, and for a lot of the reasons that you put him down on your list, uh, you know, when you think of Kenny Lofton, you think of the catch. Um, he's four gold gloves, but his steal production as well. He had 75 steals in 1996. You hit on this, led the league for those four, those five years, excuse me, where he had 325 steals in five years. Uh, Greg, a lot of guys don't even hit uh, 325 steals in their career, let alone in five years of their career. Um, just absurd numbers on the base path. Every time he got on base, you knew he was going to run. And it's just one of those things where that dominant stretch. And like you said, he has, he had his best years of his best. Like you said, he had his best years of his career as a Cleveland Indian, which it kind of just moved him up, up my list for me um, to where I could slot him at number three behind a couple of, uh, of great talents. My number two is somebody that you already mentioned, Jim Tomey. I love Jim mm-hmm. Tomey. I think that Jim Tomey is somebody that is known as one of the good guys of baseball. Right. One of the premium power bats of our generation. He led the American League in walks three different times. He had over 100 walks eight different times. He also led the league in strikeouts three different times. But Fair. Jim Tomey, 1997... Hits 40 homers, drives in 102 runs, hits 286. In his career, split between the Indians, Phillies, White Sox, Twins, Dodgers, and Orioles, he hit 612 homers. Jim Tomey played 22 years in the big leagues, but Jim Tomey also was a guy that consistently hit over 30 homers. He hit over 30 homers every year from 1996 until 2005 he only played 59 games in 2005 with the Phillies gets traded to the White Sox and ends up hitting over 34 homers each of his three full years with the White Sox I love the guy I think he's one of the good guys of baseball I think he's somebody that defines what the Indians did in 1997 I think he's somebody that would be regarded as the most beloved player in the Mm -hmm. franchise's history if he doesn't leave for Philadelphia after 2002. You're absolutely spot on about everything. He is beloved in the city. You know, every time he comes back to do an appearance, whether it was for all-star week or anything, you know, fans flock to see Jim Tomey fans love Jim Tomey. And it's just one of those things where he, you know, kind of adopted the city while he was here. It was one of those things where, you know, you talk about the gets us meter. And I think Jim Tomey, kind of broke the gets us meter while he was here. You know, he was always interacting with the fans, always saying the right thing. Then he leaves for Philly, you know, things kind of sour, comes back and kind of does like a little reunion tour. Uh, He's got a couple, you know, good games left in him. And it was kind of one of those weird things where, you know, he provided a veteran presence, but also, you know, provided a spark when you needed it. And it was one of those weird things. I'm going to climb down another rabbit hole. Greg, do you remember in like 2013 when Jason Giambi was a Cleveland Indian and he had like three walk-off home runs for no reason at all? Like he was just I, – I, I, I can't even explain it. Um, he just yeah, had – Yeah, two of them were against the White Sox. I think they were both <laughs> on Madison Reed. It was crazy. Like I don't understand how some of these guys just, you know, kind of provide – obviously they're there for more of the coaching kind of mentality – the you know what they can provide mentally for the guys on the bench um 
and then they just come in and just like, oh yeah, you need you need uh, spark off the bench in the bottom of the ninth. Here I come. Um, my number two is a guy you mentioned. I've got Tris Speaker at number two. Like I said, more steals than strikeouts in his career. Uh, three fifty four batting average. I won't dive back into you know everything that you brought up because you know I kind of want to spend a little bit of more time on this number one guy. I, I think we have the same guy, so I will let you uh, take that away. So number one is probably one of the greatest starting pitchers in history mm-hmm. is Bob Feller. 100%. Bob Feller led the big leagues in wins four different times. He had over 20 wins six different times. And every year that he had over 20 wins, he led the American League in wins. He pitched over 300 innings three different times. Check out his 1940s season. He finishes second in the MVP. He goes 27 and 11 with a 261 ERA over 320 innings. He made 37 starts. He had 31 complete games. 31. This is the <laughs> era where guys actually started the game and finished the game. You didn't have pitch counts, and there was no Cy Young Award back then. He finished top three in the MVP in 39, 40, and 41, where he won 24, 27, and 25 games, had ERAs of 285, 261, 315. He misses three years because he was in the military, comes back in 1945, he only makes nine starts. In 46, he makes 42 starts, has 36 complete games, pitches 300 and 71 innings with a 2.18 ERA. <laughs> and to top it off, he played all of his 18 years in the big leagues with the Indians. The greatest starting pitcher in the franchise's history, unquestioned, one of the greatest of all time, ended up making the all-star team eight different times, won the ERA title once, a 1948 World Series champion, Bob Feller was amazing. Oh, 100%. He, and what's crazy, Greg, is that his three years of service came when he was 23, 24, and 25. I can only imagine the damage he would have done during those seasons, especially when he came back. You know, in his age 27 season is where he had those, you know, 48 or 42 starts, excuse me, the 36 complete games. Came back, won four, or yeah, he won one. He came back from his military service and, you know, was named an all-star four more times, finished in the top 10 of MVP voting twice, or I'm sorry, three times after coming back on. It's just, he's undoubtedly one of the best all-time pitchers had the, the pitching triple crown won the ERA title. Like you said, eight time all-star, obviously a hall of famer and, and definitely puts his name, you know, at least in the hat or the upper echelon of starting pitchers in, in all of Major League Baseball. Um, you know, he had an average, I guess, if you want to call it, of 17 wins a season, which is something a lot of guys don't even touch anymore um, with, you know, pitching the the innings pitch kind of limitation on guys and, and, you know, how hard it is. But 36 complete games in one season is something I don't think we will ever see again in baseball. And, you know, I, I, I'd be willing to put like a wager on that. Like I, it's, it's not going to happen ever again. Um, and it, I don't think that's something that people take lightly. They, you know, recognize that that's the era of, of the game where he pitched in, where that was his job. He went out and he pitched and he didn't come out until, you know, the, the, the other team was really taking advantage of him. And I think it's crazy that, you know, even some of these complete games were losses, you know, these guys just went out and pitched and no matter what, you know, and it's not like, oh, we should probably go to the bullpen and, and try to, you know, make it up on, the, on that side of things. No, these guys stayed out there and, and they did their job. It was a different era. Guys Definitely. didn't micromanage bullpens or pitching staffs like they do now. No. And you don't see the era of guys like Bob Feller. And really, he was the back end of it because you go into the late 50s and early 60s and you start to see a much bigger impact on the bullpen. Mm-hmm. Charlie, before we wrap up, I do want to talk about somebody that doesn't make our lists because he's not a player, but somebody that I have a great admiration for 
and I didn't grow up around him. You did. I admire Tom Hamilton as one of the best broadcasters in baseball. I adore him. I think that he is somebody that is underrated in the field of the greatest broadcasters. And I don't think there is anybody in baseball that has a better home run call when it matters most than Tom Hamilton. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and I don't even think you can call this homerism. You know, uh, I, I grew up listening to Tom Hamilton all the time. And, you know, a lot of guys collect, you know, signed baseballs of their favorite players. I'm, I'm looking at my Tom Hamilton baseball that says a swing and a drive on it. And there is nothing that sends more goosebumps down my back and, and arms than, than Tom Hamilton's a swing and a drive, you know, whether it's to deep left or deep right. I've got a T-shirt that says it. You know, everyone encompasses Tom Hamilton. He's one of the nicest guys that you could ever meet. Anytime I've talked to him, you know, he's always, you know, interested about me. It's not just about, you know, oh, him. And I think, oh, I can't even remember what year it was. I want to say 2012, 2013. It was, a, it was a few years ago. His son, Nick, actually went to Kent State to play baseball. And the Indians drafted him and he got to play in a spring training game. And I don't, I'm sure Tom knew what was happening, but he comes up to bat in a spring training game and they cut to Tom and you can just see him just tearing up total dad move. And it's just one of those, you know, oh, kind of moments. And Tom Hamilton is one of the most down to earth guys that I've ever met. And he is insanely talented in the booth. You know, there's been times where, whether it was the world series in 2016, you know, the, the wild card game I can vividly remember in 2013 where I didn't want to listen to Joe Buck or in 2013, I didn't want to listen to the TBS broadcast. I think Matt Vaskirchen was on it. I love Matt V, but I was listening to Tom Hamilton and watching the game. You know, I had the radio on, you know, in the house, had the game on. And it was one of those things where, you know, you just wanted to hear Tom talk. You know, he starts every game the same way. We're underway from the corner of Carnegie in Ontario. And it's just one of those things where when he retires, it's going to be a sad day in Cleveland baseball. You know, he's, like I said, one of the most down-to-earth guys, one of the nicest guys, in, in my opinion, one of the best broadcasters to ever uh, grace a booth. Um, I, you, you kind of threw me for a whirl here. I didn't expect you to bring him up. But, yeah, you are absolutely right. He is one of the the staples of the Cleveland Indians, in my opinion. Even though they didn't win the World Series, I still think that one of the greatest home run calls that I've ever heard was Tom Hamilton's call of Rajay Davis's homer in the eighth inning against Aroldis Chapman. And the way that he crafted it was absolutely perfect. He has his swing and a drive away back. Gone! Right. I, I, I didn't do that call justice there, but he <laughs> lets he just lets it just breathe, and the crowd is going absolutely ballisto. And then instead of talking about the homer, because he knows the gravity of the moment, he's talking about the celebration outside of the Indians dugout. Right. And it's just like, I'm there. I can hear it. Yeah, you no, know, Tom... I, I go back and I look at the the highlight, the Joe Buck call, which was good, but then I'm listening to Tom Hamilton and I'm like, how do you not want them to win here? Right. Oh yeah, Tom's got one of the best. He knows how to let the moment breathe. Anytime there's been a walk off in Cleveland, you know he's a swing and a drive, whether deep left, right, you know, way back off the pole. There's been a couple of them. And he just lets the moment breathe. That's the guy around the base. You can hear the siren going off in the background, the fireworks. You can hear the crowd. And as soon as, you know, they touch the home plate, he'll go back into it. You know, whether it was Jason Kipnis on, what was it, his 1,000th hit where he had a walk-off home run, a couple of those Giambi home runs that we talked about earlier. He Yeah, he knows how to call a home run. He knows how to let the moment, you know, speak for itself. Um which is something that not a lot of guys know how to do. A lot of the guys want to, you know, describe every, every aspect of the moment. And it's one of those things where he knows that what he says can't really do justice as much as the crowd and the background noise and 
just letting you feel, you know, putting yourself in the in kind of the stadium shoes um, can do as much justice. But yeah, no, I, I completely agree. He, uh, one of the best broadcasters of all time, in my opinion. And like I said, it's going to be a really sad day in Cleveland sports when he retires. You know, I'm not a Cleveland sports fan. You are. I don't like the Browns. I really don't like the Cavs, obviously being a Warriors fan. <laughs> right. But to me, I like the Indians to the point where I, I want to see them win a World Series soon. That city deserves a World Series champion because, in my opinion, and I don't, you can disagree with me and say so on this platform if you do. I think the best Cleveland sports fan is the Indians fan because I think the Indians fan is the smartest and I think the Indians fan cares more relative to the Cav or the Brown fan. Yeah, that's that's a tough conversation. I think the Indians fan often kind of gets caught up in the Dolans are cheap argument and, you know, they, they just don't want to pay these guys and, and that kind of thing. I also... You know, one of the things that's really disappointing to see is is when the Indians fans don't show up. So, you know, we had the 22 game win streak, uh, 20, what was that, 2017, 2018, and up and until maybe game 10 in a row, you know, it was still kind of like that normal crowd of of 12 to 15 thousand, which you know is is fine, you know, but. It's a, it's a shame to see when the Indians, you know, up in their upper deck, I don't know when you last visited Progressive Field, um, they basically covered the tippy top of the outfield um, with kind of advertising, and it looked like giant, like, shipping containers. So, you know, I, I while I do think that the Indians fans are some of the best in Cleveland, I think attendance could could do a lot better. I think, you know, the, the arguments that they bring up about the team could be a little smarter. Um, but yeah, no, they are definitely some of the most passionate, um, right up there with Browns fans. I th- don't even get me started on like Cav the, the main Cavs fans because they don't show up when LeBron's not here. And I mean, I don't blame them. The product definitely isn't as good, but you know, it's just one of those things where unless they're winning, they're, they're not showing up. And so that's where you see the differences. The Indians ha- always have a solid amount of fans. You know, it, obviously, like I said, could be better. But no matter what, you know, if they're in a rut or not, those twelve to fifteen thousand people are still going to show up night in, night out. You know, if you have a big series with the Yankees or rivals, or you got the Dollar Dogs on Fridays, you're obviously going to have more people there. Um, but always a, a consistent amount of fans in the stands. Charlie Eagley, I sincerely appreciate you coming on our top ten episode for the top ten Cleveland Indians. I really hope that we have baseball at some point soon. You know, a world without sports has really thrown me for a loop. I'm sure it's thrown you for a loop. And, Man. you know, this is it's April 20th when we're recording this. We're coming out on April 21st. Yes, we didn't get him up at 8 a.m. and me at 5 a.m. Although <laughs> when we're recording this, it's already tomorrow in Cleveland, Ohio. It is. But, it is the 21st. You know, for me. I actually, I do want to finish up with my one story at Progressive Field, and I do want to get back there at some point. It was my junior, about to be senior year in college. I was interning in the Cape Cod Baseball League. It's a collegiate summer league mm-hmm. in Boston, in the Boston area on Cape Cod. And me and one of our interns were both Northwestern guys, and we're driving back to Chicago. And we see that the Indians are home against the Diamondbacks of all teams. <laughs> Go to the Thirsty Parrot across the street. Have a couple of tall boys of PBR. We come to the game. I got, I think I got a 216, which was a really good beer, by the way. I don't know who makes it, but whoever makes the 216, it might be Great Lakes Brewing. Uh, shout out to them. They're not a sponsor, but they should be. Uh, great beer. And the game gets rained out in the bottom of the fourth inning, and we had to get back to Chicago the next day, so we couldn't come for the rain out. So... <sighs> I ended up seeing three and a half innings of an Indians game at progressive field. Yeah. No, when you come back, you got to let me know. Cause I'll, uh, I'll definitely thirsty parrot is, is a good place to stop. There's a couple other, you know, obviously they have, I don't know if they had the corner bar when, when you got there. Um, 
but that's a great cat. That's a great place to catch a couple innings of baseball is, you know, you grab a, grab a couple beers and stand in the right, right field corner. And, oh man, they've done a lot of good things to that stadium when they, when they covered up the, the upper deck, but it's a, it's a beautiful stadium. One of the, one of the top 10 in, in MLB, in my opinion, now I've only been to five or six stadiums, but yeah, progressive field for being in Cleveland, it stands up to Bush stadium. It stands up to, you know, uh, PNC park, you know, obviously those are a couple that I've been to, but yeah, it's one of my favorite stadiums. And, and yeah, that's a little Homer in me, but it, it just provides a great view of downtown easily accessible from everywhere. And there's not a bad spot in that ballpark. I feel like I've had tickets in uh, the the bleachers in left field, which are iconic just, you know, because during the 90s, that was sold out every night, you know, Um, even up in the upper deck behind the home plate. But, you know, there's not a there's not a bad seat up there. That's it's not too high, you know, like some of those 40, 50,000 seat stadiums can get can get pretty pretty high up there. but yeah, no, we'll uh, we'll have to get you back out to Cleveland if there's baseball this year, and we'll uh, we'll catch a game together, my man. Love the sound of that, Charlie Eagley, everybody. This has been another edition of MLB Morning Coffee's Top Ten List. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, make sure you go out and check out the rest of our Top Ten lists. We've got the Top Ten Giants, Top Ten Cubs, Dodgers, Rays, Blue Jays, Yankees. I don't know why I'm forgetting the other lists that we have at this point. But we've got them. You should listen to them. We've got them. Have a great rest of your day, everybody. And as always, we will catch you in the AM.